This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. It's good to be with you all this morning. Hopefully we all had a Merry Christmas and a good time with our family and loved ones. Uh, and we spent some time thinking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a, such a beautiful time of the year. You know, we, the primary focus, of course, is on Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what procured our salvation. But this special time of year, we like to talk about and think about the time when He came to this earth and how He came to do it and celebrate that birth. You know, it's a beautiful story that is encapsulated in Luke chapter 2. And I want to quickly read verse 14, which is where our text for this morning comes from. It says, Luke 2, 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We need that message this, uh, this year, I think. It's been a long year. But there's nothing but good in our future. And it serves us well to remember that. To honor Jesus during this time, we engage in many different activities that symbolize His life and work in our lives. And one of the biggest parts of Christmas is gifts, right? Today I have three brief points I want to discuss. The gift of the King, the King's gifts, and re-gifting as we examine the significance of gifts this time of year. There's a little story I have here about a young boy named Gabriel Hurls. He turned six a few years back, January 2009, and he was so focused on eating his birthday cake at that time that he hardly noticed there was this giant package back in the corner of the room. And when another child pointed it out, he's like, man, that's a huge package. He ran over there and he began tearing off the wrapping. It wasn't a bicycle or any of the other items a six-year-old would want. Instead, it was his dad. Army Specialist Casey Hurls, home on leave from the war in Iraq. Gabriel and his father had been apart for seven months, and at that early age, you know, that's devastating for a child. So when Casey learned his leave would coincide with his son's birthday, he hatched a plan to offer one whale of a surprise. In essence, that's what God did for us on that very first Christmas. He offered us one whale of a surprise. He wrapped himself up in the form of a tiny baby, and He gave Himself to us. The first thing one should notice about the nature of Jesus' birth is its humble nature. We know He was born in a stable. When He came into this world, He didn't have a a bed on which to lay His head. There was no room made for Jesus. There was no reservation. You know, important people, I have people call ahead and make reservations for Him. But that didn't happen. There was no reservation waiting for Jesus at the nearest inn. Have you ever traveled somewhere, made a reservation, and when you arrived, you found that they'd messed it up and your room wasn't available? And then you had to frantically look for a place to sleep. I had to do that one time. I ended up at the Microtel Inn in New Mexico. Stunk of cigarette smoke and who knows what else. The bed was sticky. (laughs) It was not nice. 
I don't think I slept at all. I laid there and, you know, afraid to move. The headboard was glued to the wall. That's what happens whenever we lose our reservation. Or have you ever reserved a seat on a plane only to find that they purposely overbooked your seat and now your seat is gone and you're that person that they say has to give up your ticket? And if that isn't bad enough, they acted like what they did was perfectly acceptable because they're thinking about their bottom line, not you. It was probably a stressful event for Mary and Joseph this night. And by the world's standards, the first Christmas was a very unimpressive event. Jesus had nothing that anyone coveted or that they could take. Yet despite the humble circumstances of Christ's birth, this stable where Christ was born became the focal point of the universe in that moment. God moved the very stars of heaven to highlight His location. And consider something else. God's character remains consistent in this story, in the way in which Jesus came to, birth, to this world. As the creator of the universe, Jesus could have come in great power and glory, could He not? Yet He came in the form of a tiny babe in a manger, dependent upon His parents as all babies are and without any loud fanfare. You had to really look to know where Jesus was at or even that He was here in the first place. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to read verses 11 through 13. And he said, this is an angel speaking to Elijah, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And that was God speaking. People looking for the Messiah to come at the time of Jesus' birth we're looking all in the wrong places. God spoke in a still, small voice, not in tornadoes, earthquakes, and fire when He spoke to Elijah. And He spoke through Jesus as a babe in a manger in the most unlikely and humble places. His character is the same. From Elijah to Jesus, God's character never changed. His priority isn't showmanship. It is in relationship. Our God can be fierce. He can be fearful, he can strike, and he's always justified when he does. And yet, he chooses to be gentle, tender, and compassionate toward his creation, mankind. This is something that should be in focus during this season. How God chooses to come to us. He's worthy of all glory. He has all power, he created all things. He can shake or destroy anything or anyone but there's a side to our Lord that is most unexpected. The character of our Lord is such that He does not intimidate us into coming to Him. Instead, He shows us love, compassion, and tenderness. He humbles Himself. He speaks softly with us. When the King of Kings came, He chose to show up in an animal shelter as an infant human with every intention of allowing us to kill Him. 
The main takeaway here is that Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one by whom all things consist and persist, chose to render himself into a helpless state. It wasn't what he could do. It was what he didn't do, which establishes his enduring character in dealing with you and I. It's what we celebrate this time of year. Why does the manner in which he come deserve so much attention? Should we not be more impressed with the fact that he's God than his time on this earth as a man? Well, I would submit to you that if we're to truly understand why Jesus' coming was a gift, we have to understand that he chose to offer us salvation instead of judgment. We deserve the proverbial coal in our stockings, didn't we? But he gave us crowns of righteousness and eternal life. But to do that, he had to pay a hefty price. He had to decide to pay an unreasonable price to obtain for us this most magnificent of gifts. He had to become one of us. And that is a lowly place indeed for the creator of the universe. In Hebrews 4.15 we read, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The reason why it matters that Jesus came to this earth, the reason why we focus for a while on His becoming man is because He was making a way that we could follow. We don't have power. We don't even have the will to do as we should. And even if we did, we wouldn't have the ability to see it through. We come into this world helpless and utterly destitute and poor. And so came Jesus into this world. But He came with the power, the will, and the ability that we lack. He is a gift to a lost and dying race. So we have the gift of the King. But we also see something about the King's gifts in the, in the, the Bible. second thing I want to draw attention to is the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus in Matthew 2, verses 9 through 11. Sometimes buying a gift can be hard, can't it? When we want to get a gift for someone we love, we spend a lot of time thinking about something that is meaningful, is useful, maybe it'll be liked, maybe even desired by that person. There's a story of one husband seeking a gift for his wife, and it goes like this. A certain lady who lived on Park Avenue, she loved birds, and her husband was rich enough to indulge her every whim. For a present... He found her a parrot that spoke 11 languages and it cost him exactly $1,000 for every language that bird knew. When he got home, excitedly runs up to his wife and he says, what do you think of that bird I got you? Well, it was elegant, she answered. It's in the oven right now. The husband's face turned purple. In the oven, he shouted. Why, that bird could speak 11 languages. And the wife asked, well, then why didn't he say something? (laughs) Another man tried a different approach to getting a gift for his wife. He said, I asked my wife what she wanted for Christmas. She told me nothing would make her happier than a diamond necklace. So I bought her nothing. I don't recommend that approach. The wise men in the story of Jesus' birth had some interesting gifts. Uh, And in my studies, I gathered some information on the possible significance of those gifts. And first of all, you have the gift of gold. A gold was customary for royal visits. The wise men came bearing treasured gifts intended to honor the newborn king. And as it it is today, 
Gold was a valued commodity in the ancient world. Among the types of assets listed in the Bible, you had precious metals, livestock, servants, gemstones, and the accumulation of gold was one of the chief measures of wealth, as you can see in Genesis 13.2 and Ecclesiastes 2, verse 8. Because of its scarcity and immense value, gold was particularly associated with nobility and royalty, as is seen in 1 Kings 10, when the queen of Sheba visits King Solomon, bearing great qualities of gold, quantities of gold as a gift. Bringing a gift of gold showed that the wise men did indeed consider Jesus to be a king. In addition to understanding, uh, underscoring the royalty of Jesus, some have noted that the wise men's gift of gold may have foreshadowed another aspect of Jesus' ministry. Under the Old Covenant, the most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies, was an inner sanctuary within the temple where the priest would encounter the presence of God and he would offer a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Likewise, the incarnation of Jesus heralded the presence of God, Emmanuel. And the sacrifice of atonement he would make on behalf of his people when he went to the cross. The wise men may have had this connection in mind. Because as described in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 20-22, the walls of the holy place and the altar that were within it were inlaid with, you guessed it, gold. Then you have the gift of frankincense. Frankincense is an aromatic gum resin <clears throat> that's still widely used in parts of the Middle East and Africa today. It's produced by scraping the bark of a certain native species of trees. And then you harvest those beads of resin after they've dried. When it's burned as incense, it creates a very strong, beautiful aroma. And in the ancient Near East, the cost of frankincense precluded it from being used as a common household air freshener. It's too expensive. Rather, the burning of frankincense was closely associated with ceremonial worship of a deity. In this way... The inclusion of frankincense as a gift for Jesus may have indicated that the wise men understood that the prophecy of the newborn king carried with it a claim of deity. And as with gold, frankincense may also have implied a connection with temple worship of the Old Covenant. You see, burning incense at the altar was a key part of the sacrificial system prescribed for a god by use in the tabernacle and later in the temple itself. According to Exodus chapter 30, not just any incense would do. A specific recipe of spices mixed with pure frankincense, in verse 34, was to be consecrated as pure and holy, verse 35. And it was the only incense that was permitted at that altar. A speculative parallel can be drawn between this and Jesus' life as a pure and holy offering to the Lord. So we have gold, and we have frankincense, but wait, there's myrrh. I'll give you a second to get that. Myrrh is a fragrant spice derived from the sap of a tree native to the Near East. And like frankincense, it can be used as incense, but in the ancient world it also had a wider usage as a perfume, an anointing oil, and was even imbibed as a medicinal tonic. Most notable with regard to Jesus' life, myrrh was a key ingredient in the mixture of spices that were used to prepare bodies for burial. You can see that in John 19, 39-40. You know, embalming liquid 
typically does not appear at the top of the list of baby showers in our day and age. But it was given to Jesus when He was born. Perhaps the wise men intended this gift as an indication of Jesus' humanity and the manner in which He would save His people, namely that He would die for them. You can see that original verse that they would have drawn that from in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Just like the first two gifts, there is a temple connection with myrrh as well. Exodus 30 tells us that liquid myrrh was a main ingredient in the anointing oil used to ceremonially prepare the priests, the instruments, the altar, and the temple itself before a sacrifice could be made. Again, parallels to Jesus' consecrated life and sacrificial death are immediately noticeable in all three of these gifts. It reveals thought-provoking implications that related to Jesus' life and ministry. I don't think that's a coincidence. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, describes the wealth of the nations coming to God's people through Christ. Mary and Joseph saw a glimpse of that when they received the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we honor this gift by giving gifts to one another at Christmas. A true gift is not something we buy for ourselves, is it? Well, people say they buy themselves a gift, but that's not what it is. You're just buying something. A gift comes from someone else. I could today go out and buy myself exactly what I wanted. But one of my children might come to me with a drawing they made, and that drawing holds more value to me than the fancy item I bought for myself. This is because gift-giving is a way to express care for another person. It shows them honor and standing in the eyes of the gift-giver. If you ask just about anyone, they'll tell you that Christmas just wouldn't be the same without gifts. We freely make the season come alive for others by giving gifts. And the quality of our gifts is completely up to us, isn't it? For example, a gift of words of love or forgiveness might hold far more value than a $100 bill. The experience others have is greatly affected by what we choose to selfless, selflessly or selfishly do. In other words, gift-giving is really about more than just the gift itself, isn't it? The act of giving gifts isn't just about enriching someone or temporally blessing them. When we give a gift, it's also an act of rejoicing over the coming of our Lord and Savior. We honor Him by symbolically reenacting that glorious day when the wise men honored Him, when He condescended to come to earth as a man. And gift-giving is also about spreading the good news of salvation to a lost and dying world. We give the lost a gift that can make them co-equally rich with us as we draw attention to Jesus and the fact that He is the greatest gift ever given. Two sayings come to mind. Wise men still seek Him. And Jesus is the reason for the season. What a gift we have to give. We have found something worth losing our lives on this earth for so that we might find them in eternity with Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 10.39, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He commanded us to spread the gospel, the good news of His kingdom to the world. What better gift can we give during this season than to tell that good news? 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. To receive the gift of Jesus is to receive joy, riches, and contentment. Paul understood this as he made a list of the marks of a faithful ministry. And he beseeched the Corinthians to emulate them. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, he says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. And yet not all are rejoicing. Not all consider themselves rich, even after they follow Jesus. Not all are content with their lot in life. Why is this? It's because... Satan would love nothing more than to steal our joy, deny our riches, and spoil our contentment. Satan will either personally or through principalities and powers take one of two approaches with us as he tries to overpower and deceive us. First, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we read, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The first approach Satan has is to come before us with a mighty roar. He growls that we must follow him or he'll attack and destroy everything that we've got. But our response to this should be, Satan, I have nothing for you to destroy. For you see, I'm poor and I have nothing. And second, when Satan realizes then that he can't bully you, then he's going to try to cajole you. He puts on his best face and he offers us the world. If we'll just serve him. 2 Corinthians 11.14 And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. But our response now is, Satan, I need nothing from you. Because I'm full of joy, and I'm rich, and I possess all things. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. You know, in this world, we might appear sorrowful to some. We might appear poor and destitute, like we're missing out on life. We might be reviled and persecuted. Yet we're always rejoicing. Because we take comfort and fulfillment from something else. You see, we appear to have nothing, yet in truth we possess all things. That is what Paul is saying here. That is the great gift Christ gave to us. That is the peace He gives to us. So as we experience the joy, enrichment, and contentment that this season brings, let's remember that those blessings are not merely feelings that are produced during this season. They're renewed daily. The gift of Christ endures day after day. And so too should our re-gifting extend throughout the whole year. Don't let this be the only time of the year where we share the story of Jesus and try to bring other people to Him. The gift of Christ is uh, something that His birth, you know, we, we, we hone in on this time of year for special emphasis. But let us remember that we have cause to be joyful year-round. And to be honest, I think if we're honest at some point throughout this year, a little bit of our joy and peace got stolen, at least at some stage, right? And that's just because we, our perspective 
gets to where it's on the wrong thing. So remember 2 Corinthians 6 and 10. We can be content year-round in any circumstance and keep on gifting people with the Gospel. Have you ever considered before that the wise men coming to Jesus was almost a type of the eventual invitation that we still offer to this day? Jesus was there in His manger. God moved heaven and earth to make it clear to those He chose Jesus' location, identity, and role as Savior and King. And you know what? Those wise men came to Him. They humbled themselves before Him. They presented offerings of themselves to Him even when the rulers of the land were seeking to discredit and kill Him. Later in His life, Jesus would say in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. The word easy there means that the yoke fits right. <clears throat> Which is not to say that being a Christian is easy, but that it is better, easy, good, gracious, kind. When oxen were yoked together, <clears throat> there was a lead ox who set the pace, forged the way for others, and that lead oxen would determine the experience of the work being done. Would it be hard? Would it be uncomfortable? Or would it be a better fit? In this analogy, Jesus is that lead ox and He invites us to come to Him. This is not an invitation to glamour and glory on this earth. It's not an invitation to a yoke of laziness. It's an invitation of a yoke to work. But it's work that we will find palatable. Not unreasonably harsh and even enjoyable. He invites us to join Him working the fields of the lost souls. He offers us the gift of following in His footsteps so that we may receive salvation and the gift of eternal life and then toil to bring others into the same fold of which we're now a part. Jesus tells us in this verse that He is not a cruel taskmaster. He knows our weak frames. He's not merciless in seeking His glory. Instead, He assures us that He's meek and lowly in heart. Psalms 103, 10-14 One of my favorite passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward him that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For He knoweth our frame, He remembereth that we are dust. When I read this psalm, I cannot help but think that God just keeps outdoing Himself. He not only gave a great gift, but He gives it in a great way. His gentleness, kindness, and love is so thoroughly expressed in the person of Jesus that I moved to sing a song before we close this lesson out. Song number 103, if you'll turn there with me the love of God. I want to sing to God about the great gift of His love this morning, how it's so fantastic, so perfect, and is of such high quality that we simply cannot express it. 103. It's a beautiful song, but 
I chose it for the words. Listen to these words. Let's sing. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When hoary time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with the ocean fill and where the skies a parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole stretch from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Amen. What a gift. Those words make you smile. If you haven't accepted and opened your gift from Jesus, do it today. 
It's a new life. It's a new hope. It is peace, joy, and contentment in Him for all eternity. Today is the day to accept the gift. Believe in and acknowledge your need for Christ due to your sinful and lost condition. Confess your sins, repent, and be immersed in baptism in likeness of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Likewise, if you're already saved, but you find that your joy, your peace, and your contentment have been stolen, it can be yours again. Look again on the quality of that great and priceless gift that He gave you. Let us pray with you today that your joy, that your peace, that your contentment and righteousness may be restored. If there be any of either case, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.